Hello and welcome to This Is Your Life Path, a podcast where I sit down with tabletop game designers and we have a chat about all of the things that have influenced and inspired them away from the tabletop world. I'm your host Kayla, I'm a game designer myself and I publish as Ratway Game House. I do games all about connection and alienation. At the start of the year, I released The Man We Knew, a noirish thriller for Orbital Blues about an old friend, sudden death, and a dangerous racket, which you can find at ratwavegamehouse.itch.io. Now to jump into the episode and introduce today's guest. My guest on this episode is the co-creator of Orbital Blues, the creator of Best Left Buried, and the upcoming Inevitable, my wonderful mate, Zach Cox. Hello. Thank you very much for having me, Kayla. It's good to be here. Yes. How are you doing today? Do you want to introduce yourself anymore, or are you all satisfied? I mean, you've pretty much done all of the stuff. Uh, I run a company called Soul Muppet Publishing, and also do a lot of work with Veronica and Deckard. As well as being a games designer, I mainly do a lot of like project and product management, uh, which is like making, turning things from games into books and making sure that people can enjoy the books and buy the books, no matter which continent they are on and uh, what's happening with them. So yeah, it's uh, games, games maker is, is, yes. is broadly, but yeah, I'm hoping to, games design has been big big passion of mine going back a very long time so yeah. that's one and we're gonna learn more about that on the podcast i don't know why i said that like i was throwing to i don't know uh, the one show segment <laughs> i'm trying to figure out my podcasting voice um yeah so first question to start off uh where did you grow up uh so i'm I'm British. I uh, grew up in Nottingham in the East Midlands uh, in England. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, that's 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 where I grew up. That's what I was doing. I'm like 26. Will be 27 next week. Like, I feel like a child saying that. Oh, I'm I'm seven and three quarters. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's so 26 kind of and 27. Uh, grew up in the in Nottingham in the 2000s. Mostly. Yes. So that means wargaming. Um, <laughs> so a lot of Warhammer in my childhood and exposure to fantasy through r- lots of reading at the local library and um, lots of little plastic men that cost my parents lots of money. And now <laughs> in my adulthood have cost me lots of money as well. So do you still, yeah. what's the oldest little plastic man you own? Oh God! Uh, I mean, is uh, so I have a bunch of uh, so the oldest uh, like thing I have owned consistently is probably like a Space Marine from two thousand and five. I'd guess I've got a, a guy I won a painting competition at ten years old is like up in my attic somewhere. Uh, I did give them away to a friend for about five years, but managed to get them back. My entire childhood Space Marine army was returned to me for the princely sum of buying the man a curry. Uh, (laughs) It was, uh, I managed to remember that. The oldest, yeah, the oldest model, I've probably got some from the 90s. um, Some old plague marines because I like having funky little retro dudes amongst the modern tall ones. You know, some short kings in my Space Marine army, you know. Yes. 
so true. But yeah. Um, so you were into like fantasy and gaming from like quite a young age. How did you first get into it? Well, uh, the, my first experience in role playing games happened about ten years before I actually played my first actual real game. Mm. Uh, I think I was in Waterstones. I was probably about eleven or twelve, and somebody no not somebody i saw a copy of warhammer fantasy role-playing second edition which is a uh excellent it's the the, the um probably well i'll get i might get in trouble with this i think it's the best of the warhammer editions um, oh, okay first one's a bit mad you, it doesn't age very well the old the grogs would shout at me for this but yeah so i was playing the i was trying to play a Warhammer fantasy role-playing campaign with my brother and maybe one other friend with no understanding of the culture or texture of role-playing games or what they were because I wasn't part of a club I'd not I'd never played a game before I started trying to run one and like yourself taught off the book self-taught YouTube wasn't a thing right you couldn't watch Critical Role to work out how Matt Mercer does it or you know whichever person you're drawing influence from in that mm. kind of seat so and I wasn't on the internet either because, you know, in 2005, I didn't have a phone. No one no one yeah. had a smartphone, I think. Uh, no. So I was playing that for, I probably tried to play it for a couple of years, like on my lunch break at the school Warhammer. I was like, this is also Warhammer. We can play rat catchers and like trying to get, get them to play that instead of combat patrol, the people I was hanging out with. Uh, and then like, Probably about 10 years after that, when I was at uni, I sort of played 5th edition and then spiralled out of that, first through the like old school dungeoneering Google Plus blog scene, and then slowly becoming more story game pilled as I uh, have like advanced in my career. Not that I don't love all that dungeoneering stuff, I just think that like there's people who are doing that work a lot more interesting than me now. Uh, yeah, best, whereas... my even my first game, Best Left Buried, which is very much a smushing together of old school dungeoneering sensibilities with um, story game esque macro economy. You know, these things happen to you as you go dungeoneering, and it delivers a sort of um, a piece about workers' rights and mental health in the workplace by making dungeoneering something that you do for a job. Mm. Um, even the first thing I made was very influenced by stuff like Fate, by stuff like Blades in the Dark, which I think was just releasing around the time right. I was playing Buried and like story games uh, of that vein. And then I've you know slowly gotten sadder and more <laughs> cowboy orientated as the years have passed. Yeah, the uh, depression yeah. comes on with the cowboy aesthetic. Yeah, give or take. I mean, it's fair to say that the characters in Best Left Buried are pretty depressed. Um, yes. You know, but it, all my games are about mental health, basically, um, mm. when you start, like, looking back and examining subtext. But, you know, um, that's a that's a whole <laughs> other interview question to where did you grow up? Um, so, no, no, that's fine. It's going to bounce around. That's cool. So, so when you were introduced to, like, 5e and stuff, in uni where did that come was that from like societies or uh, friends or I, stuff well the exact thing that happened was that i um i moved into my flat in second year and 
um, we didn't have any Wi-Fi for two weeks. Oh. Uh, because I didn't understand, as a person who'd only ever lived with my parents or in halls, that like the Wi-Fi didn't just turn on the moment you took a plug the box into the wall. Uh, so in that two weeks, I played a lot of Super Smash Brothers on my best friend's uh, GameCube or whatever it would have been, you know. And then uh, around that, I bought the three, the big three book set, and then like the, the people I was living, with, we don't have anything to do, right? It was yeah. either we didn't have any money, so we could go drinking. <laughs> so uh, you know what ended up happening is that I think I must have. I bought the the three box set, found a map on the internet. I was probably running a Dyson Delve or something. Oh, I was. I wouldn't have been that cultured. It would have been Lost Minds of Fandelver or something. Uh, and then I ran D and D ten times in uh, in two weeks because oh, wow. we, we didn't have anything to do. Right? You know. Um, so that I I I've not I've never played. It was like a we did a big campaign in like two weeks basically because I had nothing to do apart from prepare sessions and my friends were like well let's play again then because we've got nothing better to do so yeah yeah if you're all stuck without the wi-fi um we're stuck without the wi-fi and then obviously the wi-fi then arrived and we played three games over the course of that next year because we could look at the internet now yeah so (laughs) it was uh it was but yeah i start i played that and then through the sort of university of york gaming society which is where i went to uni i think I ended up playing a couple different games over that year. Played a fair bit of Fate, uh, which I don't recommend to anyone. It's interesting, <laughs> but just, yeah. I, I think genre agnostic Fate. games are... Well, it's it's like a sort of... It, claim, it claims to do the thing where, like, in a sort of Joseph Campbell sense, it breaks down the concept of stories mm. into aspects and high concepts and some other thing. And, like, they think they've solved all genres by, but like I think genreless gaming is not having a genre is just like the act of cowardice because like yeah trying to do it for anything means it can be done for, it can actually do nothing right so the games that I make are always like delivering the absolute knife of a genre and an experience because like they're sculpted to do a thing and if if the game isn't doing that thing you should be playing a different game right. Yeah, uh, there's I a get that, like is he, yeah, it like there's a core like thrust of what your games are doing that is tied into genre um, and setting and everything there. That yeah. when you have games that aren't that, it just feels hard for me to often like visualize that without yeah. And like else. sometimes I you have there's an idea or a theme so specific that there isn't a game for it, right? And in that case, maybe it's worth running something agnostic, but like I think with the wealth of games available today, having a universal role-playing game is 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 is, is a waste of a waste of paper. Mm-hmm. Because if it's you know if it's trying to I, yeah, no, but um yeah, so I played a lot through the I was doing an economics degree at York. Um, and I was playing, uh, which is completely useless to my actual field. If you told any of my, if you told any of my school English teachers that I was now a professional publisher, I ran a publishing company. I'd written a dozen books, well, a dozen. I had written many books. Uh, they would be quite surprised that that was the case because I think I thought Shakespeare was quite boring, and I wasn't, you know. So that meant that 
you know, I bounced off mice and men, which means I must have hated literature. Um, <laughs> you know. So you weren't like a particularly like bookish uh, academic. Like, well, no, I read a lot. I was consuming voracious quantities of of like fantasy novels mm. between the ages of you know like seven and sixteen. I don't read much anymore because I'm just I'm working all the goddamn time and I'm thinking about games and I'm writing. But yeah, I think I've probably I think there have been. I was also probably riddled with so much neurodiversity that I think there would have been weeks in my teenage and preteen years where I had read more books than I Zachary Cox have in the last five years. Right? Yeah, um, I was I was chewing stuff off the shelf, and you know my teachers at the time would have been like stop consuming this rubbish genre fiction and try to like actually read something of cultural value you know i had an i had an english teacher who was like you need to stop reading terry pratchett but the nearest thing that's sensible you should read is like jeeves and worcester right read some woodhouse uh, <laughs> you'll be you know to be fair those are great books i enjoyed them it was a good recommendation but there were no wizards in it, so it didn't really hold yeah, my attention for very long. Snobbish, like Ooh. setting and thing to be delivering as a. As I a was, teacher. I, I was at a very posh private school, so ah. that, if, if 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 you can't tell from the way I talk, yeah, it was a very fancy <laughs> private school. And, uh, I see that that yeah that makes that slots in. <laughs> yeah, I mean there was a, a huge, beautiful library with you know a very large section of you know, walls and walls and walls of young adult fancy because the librarians didn't care. They just wanted you to read. Um, mm. But, you know, the English teachers were very much like, this is not Lord Byron or, you know, you know and, well, yeah, poetry. You should, be, you should be reading poetry instead of fantasy novels, you know. Um, but, you know, and I, then I didn't pursue it because I didn't pursue any type of writing because, I, you know, maths felt easier. Uh, mm. And I have no idea 10 years later how I held that opinion at the time. <laughs> But, yeah. Speaking of being riddled with neurodiversity and reading, I remember, like, on more than one occasion, yeah. when I was an, an active reader as as a kid as well, like, in a similar way, being, like, given a book by a teacher, being like, you should read this. It's about a kid who doesn't fit in and is really sad about it. And I'm like, I feel like this is a message. Why am I being given this message? <laughs> I feel like to use some Merengueism quote about subtext there, but you know. <laughs> so I guess talking about like fantasy and the reading you did, what kind of book sort of, what kind of like, I guess, fiction or other medium stuff say, if we were to go in order, like first and foremost, like best left buried, and then we could go out from there. Um, well, best left buried was, is, um, Honestly, there's not really that much media in there because it's all about dungeoneering, right? That game mm. is a... So for, for those who haven't played Best of Bread, you play or have read it at all, playing it is, of course, optional. Um, <laughs> you play adventurers who are professional adventurers called crypt diggers, and you work for a crypt digging company that uh, digs into uh, you know ruins of dungeons and looks for treasure that are then taken back to the bank and then sold, right? Uh, so you're basically professional adventurers, and what happens is that dungeoneering is really horrible. It's a game about how awful dungeoneering would be if we did it in real life. Uh, it is cold, it is wet, it is dark. You can see tiny little glinting goblin eyes at the end of the dungeon. 
and it does bad things to people because workplace stress and horrible injury uh, doesn't make people feel happy. So it's kind of got a um, an opt-in sanity mechanic, in inverted commas, because I think that they've got a really bad rap in a lot of games for being very ableist, and that is something that was very important to me as a person suffering from like actual real-life mental health issues and aware of disability in the world. And it's about, you basically have health and then manner, not sorry, health and grip, which represents a mixture of stamina, sanity, and manner. And that is used for re-rolls, casting spells, and also like degraded by um, degraded by monsters and stuff attacking it or appearing, or just stuff that scares the shit out of you. And when you run out of that stat, as you get towards hitting zero, because if you run out of grip, you die, you become... You join the monsters, you have a heart attack, you panic, you give up, you go home. You know, you're removed from the game. The only way to get it back isn't by resting, it's by accepting um, afflictions or injuries, which are things that you roleplay about your character. You can either roll one or choose one, and it kind of adds a fun roleplaying, a fun sort of kooky, dark comedy roleplaying element to being in your dungeon and not it not being very good for your people who have been chewed up and spat out by essentially capitalists um and the idea being that you're choosing it you're opting into it this is what happens to people who have to work in these kind of scenarios it, you know they don't do well it's horrible uh it, i didn't realize i was writing a very politically themed game at the time i was trying to write a horror dungeon crawler right and it is a horror dungeon mm. crawler but specifically the thing I didn't like about playing old school games was that I was getting, I was dying all the time and I liked my characters and it was annoying when they died very immediately. So despite the fact Best Death Braid is a horror game, is actually really quite difficult to die compared to a lot of games of the genre. <laughs> uh, so the, the specific thing about it is that instead of your character dying, you get this huge pool of re-rolls that you then have to earn up by having fun things you can roleplay about your character or, you know, uh, mechanical injuries and stuff. So rather than that wasn't really about media at the time. It was more of a, like, a reaction to me wanting something different when I was playing these old school, these, like, weekly old school games I was playing with my friends at the time and getting really fucking annoyed when my first level character fell into a pit trap and then ate shit, you know? Yeah. Like... I liked that guy. They had a cool name. And, like, what, I, I understand that, like, in the culture, what you're meant to do is, like, embrace joyfully because making a character is the most fun part of the process, right? But the idea being that if you did die in Best Death Raid, it's so quick and interesting to make a new character that you don't feel too bad about it. But, you know, you kind of have this fun transition of these kooky, fresh-faced veterans coming straight out of the recruitment to, like ending up with this absolutely grizzled team of adventurers. So, like, the main thing there is it's, like, a, it's simultaneously a rejection and a love letter to that kind of old-school gaming, where yeah. hoping people who didn't like it because of those reasons, right? High mortality, character attachment, uh, the rules maybe... like It's also a little bit more complicated rules-wise. You can sort of play as quite... It, there's a nice crunch to the combat that mm. doesn't happen in a lot of games where you just roll a d20 and maybe do some damage to it after. So it's been quite popular because people have enjoyed that. And also my collaborator on it, Ben Brown, the artist, has done impeccably weird like 
black and white monsters for it over the course of five years now nearly since we started working on it so um you know they really really captures people's imaginations yeah yeah the monsters and art for best left buried is really awesome yeah no. um so i guess in that case the influence is there sort of a commentary on dungeon crawling would, would you use the word commentary yeah i think that's fair yeah um and that commentary inviting and bringing in a lot of aspects of sort of um workplace and toxic work environments yeah, I mean, like we we is that toxic work environments workplace and also like colonialism being very bad mm. Uh, which is something that kind of gets shrugged over in a lot of like these goal for experience based dungeon calling stuff. We're writing a book at the moment called Throne of Average, written by my good friend Brian Yaksha, who has uh, basically written a big book about like the banks and the companies and these sort of instruments of capital and colonialism which send you into the adventuring world. Like Brian is much smarter than me when it comes to writing themes. Like I very much came up with. This all this stuff about what Best Left was about, what it meant, like very much appeared after I'd written it, and it, this happens quite a lot. I look at a game and go, "Wow, that is that is very deeply sad," and it's about how much I hate capitalism. Um, yeah, and that has happened. How do you feel when you notice that? It, well, it's we're coming up on the third time in a row now, Kayla. So I'm getting less surprised each time. You know, um, like, oh, there's yeah. you again. <laughs> there's me. There's it. There's that. Um, you know. But there's a point, there was a point in, or like or the, or the development of Orbital Blues happened quite similarly in that, so I was pitched a best, uh, a space Western version of Best Left Buried by uh, my friend Sam Salini, who's Orbital Blues' creator. And he said, we should hire this artist. He's my buddy, he's called Josh. He does all these amazing photo kitbashed uh, illustrations. And I want to make a, a Dust Bowl space Western about um like the being a sad space cowboy who is unemployed is moving around the galaxy trying to get work making ends meet uh and kind of but also being cool and that being a also being cool you know what i mean because like there's something so effortlessly cool about the idea of the space cowboy like yeah i think it's borrowed from uh Cowboy Bebop, certainly, and I guess Firefly as well, although that's aged quite poorly, in my opinion, looking mm -hmm. at how I feel about Joss Whedon and the, <laughs> all the stuff flying around about him. And, you know, I don't think that set was always handled very well, and it didn't last for very long, but anyway. And then The Mandalorian now is also, like, another fantastic space western. Yeah. is also about a very sad dad and his kid you know the the great stories of the noughties were or not the noughties what do we call them the teenies now oh what, the teenies is horrible. i've heard the new tens but i've never new heard anyone say oh, i was oh. listening to something where someone instead of saying the noughties said the ooze see i'm a big fan of the ooze i, think I the love ooze the idea that we grew up in the ooze the ooze <laughs> i came of age That's during the ooze that's what the river in York is called. So it works. <laughs> wow. And also, I grew up mostly covered in ichor. So, <laughs> three level. No. Um, yeah, all these stories of the of the last decade about sad men with kids uh, appearing a couple. Or, like, you know, kid-like figures, adopted yeah. children. Uh, Wards. Appearing, 
wards. Yes, and having a having a a sad dad and a ward is very much what the that how inevitable the novel that that's based on started. But ah. once I'm talking about. Orbital Blues, yeah, sorry. So Orbital Blues, Sam Pitcher Orbital Blues, and then we wrote it, and it was actually a quite straight Best Left Braid adaption. Uh, you know, you kind of started playing and eventually developed these reasons that you were sad as you were playing. And then about six months into that, we'd, we'd done a, the first draft of the game, and it was good, but it was like, it was missing a little bit of source. And then... Um, in the process of rewriting a bunch of it, and Sam was writing this amazing adventure called the the Subtle System, uh, which was released as an Unchained Melody, uh, which is the quick start we did. Uh, I was off like doing a bunch of like mechanical rewrites for the base game, and what we did was well, what actually happened is that I played Disco Elysium, and was having a terrible. It was in the fallout of a terrible breakup, uh-huh. and I was incredibly depressed. And um, have you played Disco Elysium, Kayla? I've not played Disco Elysium. Okay, so it's about, and for, for those of you at home, uh, a incredibly sad cop who is an alcoholic and is trying to solve a murder in this sort of um, weird post-communist revolution neoliberal uh, city called Martinez, Revachol. It's kind of French and Eastern. The, the creator of this amazing, I think they're Estonian, but it's sadly a bunch has gone wrong with that team now. And they've been bought I've by seen a bit about that. Yeah, it's a beautiful game, and it's about a very depressed cop. And it's a it's a CRPG, right? So it's got the um, it's it kind of works like Planescape Torment or Baldur's Gate or something like that. But there's no combat, and your skills are voices in your head that are talking oh. to you as you play. So like you don't you're rolling skill checks to see if your the force of your encyclopedic knowledge can inform you about something that's going on and you've got like 16 skills that are like how much do you know how good are you at convincing people things what's your intuition can you do like sherlock holmes esque visual calculus and work out that there's seven people walking through this pile of mud here and like you know but they get increasingly more weird. So you're like, now the spirit of the city of Revachol will communicate you through like messages. And the other one is called Inland Empire, who's like the your like intuition of the world and your voices speaking to you inside your head. Right. There's another one which is because you're a cop. It's called L'Esprit de Corps. I don't speak French, so that's terrible. But like, it's your your knowledge as a cop, like institutionalized in your head, speaking to you in the voices of your colleagues who are sort of implied to all be dead in action. Like, and it's so you've got these like voices talking to you as you play, mm. and like your role, depending on your stat distribution, you are like your different parts of your brain are talking to you more. So like, if you are a cop who is very strong and fast your um the forces of your your body will talk to you more whereas if you're like a emotionally savvy or smart cop you will get like more intuition emotionally or uh like facts appearing or like information about the screen and like so you're everything down the right you're basically your brain's talking to you right? that's a really um, fascinating way of like 
showing a different emphasis of character. Oh yeah, it's it's completely mad. And but the the thing about it that me, that really influenced Orbital Blue specifically was this thing, or at least like the very small part that I had to play in the Orbital Blue's mechanical engine is this thing called the Thought Cabinet, which is essentially a um, inventory for what you are thinking about, right? So you have a, an increasing number of slots as things as the game increases that you get by leveling up. And you basically have a question or an idea that you are thinking about and that like occurs to you as you are exploring the world. You can say, ooh, I wonder how old I am. Or like, um, is communism a good idea? Or like, you know, why am I here? All these questions, right? And you can choose to think about them by placing them in your thought cabinet. And then you move around the world. And as time passes and you are thinking about it, you eventually finish that entry in the thought cabinet. And you are awarded with a mechanical bonus for having thought about this thing and understood it. And what you can do is then either... And there are also bonuses while you are doing a certain thing. So if you're thinking about your body and how old you are, you will get a bonus to your physical dexterity, right, while you are doing that. And then at the end, you get the ability to have, like, something appears better, or, you know, you you get a little buff. And you either go, I will continue this and remember it and keep it in your thought cabinet, or you throw it out and start thinking about a new thing. Right. Right. So, essentially, it's an absolutely brilliant piece of games design that I was like, this is about a guy who is brooding incredibly sadly about a number of quite specific things. And essentially the troubles system for um, Orbital Blues, which is like a sort of a mixture of XP prompts, backstory generators, and character and history uh, accumulate contact generation and also like role-playing prompts that give you experience if you will but it's called blues but it is affecting it's an experience and then you gather your points by role-playing in line with this character or inventing backstory because like the trouble is the thing that you are sad about right <laughs> and then when you get to a certain point you can then say okay my trouble's now brewing. That's what we call it. Trouble's brewing. And you can enter as you have to have a an emotionally charged action or conversation with a crewmate or a rival or just a combat, right? Where you are incredibly sad. And music plays while you are doing something. And then when that happens and you've finished your... Um, you finish that scene, you level up, right? Uh, but not before you have to spend like two or three days just being mad fucking zonked out depressed, right? Yeah. Um, and the that was like, that specific bit of mechanics was like me basically working out how to write a less context-specific version of the thought cabinet from Disco Elysium. Mm. Because like, you couldn't write those because they're like very keyed to being that specific character. So yeah. it has to be like, here are the things that you are sad about. And what I'm trying to work out at the moment in time for Orbital 2s, which is the joke name for the Orbital, next Orbital Blues project coming this year, 
Are you worried you need to get off the joke name quickly, otherwise it's going to stick? I have such a problem. I've only once have I ever managed to change a project after I first thought of the name for it. <laughs> uh, Inevitable used to be called Myth. And yes. then fucking Chris McDowell, that bastard, released a game called Mythic Bastion Land, which is also about being knights and seers on a quest. And I was like, that won't stand. We're friends. I'll have to go to the pub with him. I don't want to kill him <laughs> because I think it's a role-playing game. Uh, so I had to change that. But yeah, no, Orbital 2s will have an actual series name. It would be, you know. But what I'm trying to work out is how can I give a spaceship trouble? Oh. Um, and then once I work that out, we're cooking with gas. Yeah. But in the meanwhile, I'm just sat here madly trying to work, read, consume as many PBTA texts as well, just sticking my face in Wonder Home until tokens fall out of my ass. <laughs> um, you know, we'll work it out. But yeah. I really thought when I've played Orbital Blues, like picking troubles is where I discover like what is like almost like a core sort of like anchor or codex for my character and how I end up playing them. The only thing I'd change if we did Orbital Blues again is you currently start by coming up with a name and a like a sort of tag, like a call sign. There's this wonderful spread in the book of like you could be the mechanic or the loser or the smoker or the hick. And mm. I'm like, if I was starting again that would be the thing you pick after choosing a trouble. Like the yeah. most important thing should be the reason that you have depression. Uh, and yeah. it's not always depression, but like, you know, well, that's absolutely right. It's the blues. The, the blues, right. The blues as a sort of mythical monolithic concept. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's what we're doing there. So, and also the other thing about Orbital Blues is that I really needed to work out how to there was a big currency thing where we got rid of all the money and replaced it with the fact that you will always be poor like mechanically enforced uh. poorness uh, because that's another big part of the politics of it right in that the gig economy is set by the structures of capitalism to um, want to destroy you and want you to be a sort of agent in there and buy being these kind of like freelance itinerant workers while you are like rejecting the tenets of capitalism entirely and that you're trying to move around and not have a job and not work for a corp um it's inevitable right you know you 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 still have you still can't fix it because all these structures around you are and that was you know it was clearer to us at that point that it was a game about like i think it was always a game about poverty and depression but like it was important to me that well, this like this is where the 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 old school method of this, the thinking adventures way, would be making the themes of the setting about poverty and depression, right? Which is how we started. But what actually we ended up doing was making the engine of the game make those things something that would be certain by having the designer of the game, me, sit at your table and tell you how the rules work. Um, you know. Or co-designer rather but yeah but yeah sam did a lot of the narrative work josh obviously crafted this amazing beautiful world that's full of um like fake posters and like in-universe adverts and it's logos so stylish that exist oh it's, it's it's slick it's so slick uh i'm very happy to work with josh again and again and again on whatever books he'll agree to make with me uh, but yeah, yeah like the mechanics and rules of 
things like the blues and like the economy, I guess, like all go and enforce the themes on there. It... Those things being inescapable, being baked into the mechanics, is a very important part of the world, right? You know, mm. we're trying to tell a story about a certain thing and railroading your ability to escape from that within almost the un- with the un- within the unexceptional realm of play. As long as you are on a spaceship and you have not, you know, and you want to look after your people and provide, you know, you're never going to be rich because that's something that the other people do, and they yeah. are willing to. The people who have accumulated capital are willing to commit greater violence than you are, almost certainly. Uh, and if not, then that's the reason you should have the fucking blues, you know. Well, okay. So moving on to inevitable inevitable is soul muppets upcoming game are you going to crowdfunding some point this year yeah uh, hopefully april slash may kickstart it's all about like i want to make sure i like to try and make sure that people get the game i previously finished crowdfunding before i start selling them the next one uh, yeah, because that's good practice so basically it's nearly done it's like as soon as i can get it to people it will be coming and it is so um, the the, inf- the 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 situation for this one is that I started writing Inevitable six years ago. Now uh, I had the last big fantasy book series I read, and I will never probably read another one. Was <laughs> uh, the Dark Tower by Stephen King, which is a um, it's basically Lord of the Rings by way of uh, spaghetti Western. It concerns the work of Roland of Gilead, who is the gunslinger son of the line of Eld, which is like King Arthur's great, 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 great grandson, Roland de Shane. He's like wandering around his post-apocalyptic universe as the whole thing is collapsing in upon itself. And it's it, there's like two very classic Westerns book series that are like kind of a little bit kooky. And then five remaining completely insane like planes hopping he goes to new york and like meets all these humans and not humans like people from earth and then you know they go to his fantasy world and then stephen king meets himself in book six you know and it's completely mad but yeah it it completely goes off the wall at the end but it's still beautiful but what uh, caught my imagination was this the idea of this incredibly wounded man who everyone he knows and loves has died wandering around the desert with this kid called Jake, who's like his little squire, his sidekick. And there's more characters throughout the novel, but the first book, The Guns Thing, was about this kid and this old man wandering. Well, he's not even that. He's, well, he's, he's, he's implied to be centuries old. Uh, but this magical gun-toting knight um, cowboy wandering the world. And I wrote, as I was writing it, I was like, I, I tried to pitch a um, a game of it, a, ga- a role-playing game of this that was like Stephen King, Dark Tower-esque to, um, to my 5e group as like, We'll play some low magic 5e with some gunslinging knights and we'll go on a quest to try to get to heaven at the end of the desert. Um, And I 
they instead decided to play uh, a like ultra modern 5e thing about being a twitch streamer uh, who was a cyberpunk assassin uh, and i'm very annoyed that i put that pitch in there i did the thing i do too often where i offer to my friends and you've been subject to this have I? A series of things to vote for that I could run while actually only wanting to run one of them. You know? Oh, right, like, yes. This is what I want, but which game do you guys want to play? So inevitable or, you know, knee myth, knee the last Eric was scorned and rejected by my friends in favour of Twitch streaming assassins. It was a great one shot. They, like, went through a dance floor and killed someone in a club and it was with SMG. Very, very, very good, but not the thing I would spend the next six years of my life writing. So I was so angry they wouldn't play my role-playing game. I wrote a novel. Uh, <laughs> no one had to participate in my novel, apart from all my beta readers, which, God bless them, they did their best. And it was about um, a knight and his uh, his his squire. Uh, well, like a, a guy who becomes... A kid who becomes a squire in the same way that it does in Rhodes' game. About walking through this desert full of uh, wizard uh, cowboys and being very sad. And the big thing about Inevitable and about the world of myth and the Baron, which is the setting, is that prophecy is immutable, right? There's nothing you can do to prevent a prophecy from happening. So I wrote a novel about this character who knows how he's going to die and has done for a very long time. And in the same way that it does in the Dark Tower, his civilization has been destroyed. He is the last remnant of everyone he's ever known. But he's been told he's not going to die for another 15 years. So he's like wandering around trying to get himself killed doing suicidal heroics. But it's just not working because, you know, he's been foretold, you know, he's not going to die. And he meets all these other characters. And it's basically about all these people and their relationships with knowing their death, right? And these people accepting it in lots of different ways, which is a great pitch for a novel. But what I then tried to do is that I thought that I was writing a three-book series, right? So I've got the first novel on ice that took me a full year to write when I was doing nothing else creatively. And uh, I've got to finish it because... Well, I'm never going to finish it because not only are they so large, but also, like... I have extremely, I've let it, so there's a third act cliffhanger. If I release it now and didn't finish, like with no intention of finishing it, because it would take me two more years to finish trilogy if I did no yeah, other creative work. Um, you know, there's, I, 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 the, the fans would be furious. <laughs> and it's terrifying. Like, they'd, be, they'd be lynched. At this, I mean, I, that sounds really pretentious, but like there would be like four people on my Discord server who'd really hate me. Um, so you know, I'd, I'd rather keep them as, uh, as 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 pals and customers and friends. So uh, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. But the so what I ended up doing is going. Well, this world is amazing. I've written something of really potent themes. How do I turn it into a role play? Mm. Uh, and there was also a point where like, I realized I was writing very tight Stephen King Stephen King fan fiction. But when I um, was reading Wizard and Glass, which is the fourth book in the Dark Tower the one that I think is the best. And I flipped to the next page and um, they, were, they were in a bar, a saloon called The Traveller's Rest. And I was writing a scene in my novel at that point 
set in a pub called the Traveller's Rest. Right? Oh my like, god! I've 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 started predicting, prophesizing. I'm too deep in the source. So I took a bit of a break and then wrote something a bit more original after that. But it's like still the dialogue was a bit rubbish. I'm I'm not a great novelist. I'm a much better RPG writer. So what I tried to do was work out well how can I how can I write a role playing game about this setting because I think it's fantastic and I love very sad cowboys and I have done for some time Um, and. Writing a writing a role playing game with the same theme as the Last Errant would have been exceptionally difficult because it's about death and about your character dying in a certain place and like these characters knowing what's going to happen to them, which is very difficult because like people don't like being told what's going to happen in their role playing game, right? Mm. And that's been the the issue with trying to write it. So I spent a while noodling around and I wrote a bunch of systems and I realised that what I need to do is that I've moved the setting of the game quite early in the midway through the writing process from being about travelling this ruined world where the civilization has been destroyed and you are sort of in the remnants of it to it being the the last mo- the last pre-apocalyptic moments of your great civilization. And the thing that we know is going to be destroyed is not your character. It is myth, your kingdom. Your, every Everybody you know and love will die and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and so in the game you play knights and wizards and priests and cowboys in service of the king of myth, this civilization, and you are attempting to run around and stop it from being destroyed in a um in you know without and it's all about like can you save this world you probably can't so it's actually about the story that you're going to tell of this destruction right and how you specifically as heroes of this great land will be remembered right it's about telling a whatever the opposite of a creation myth is right um, because it's more easy to say what's going to happen in a campaign, which is that we're going to fail to stop the city from being destroyed, um, than to tell your characters how they're going to die, right? Because you have agency, the setting does not, right? Yeah. So it's going to be very, very sad because it's about death and destruction and the end of things, but. There's also a moment that you get to choose the manner of your demise in a way that is hopefully going to be a beautiful story that we can tell for all of these players. And also, you get to play cowboys with magic guns, and yeah. it's very cool. Uh, yeah, I was in. <laughs> I was in a playtest for Inevitable, and I can confirm it is very sad. It is very cool, and yeah, about like, I guess I'll say two and a half characters died because my character died, but my heart was buried in a box somewhere. Yeah, your but, heart was cast in umber, which means that you're you were eventually going to wake up at the end of the campaign. Yeah. Um, yeah. Two characters died, died, but all the, those moments of death were hugely dramatic and hugely satisfying and also all felt so informed by all of those characters from the moment we'd met and created them 
they had had an awareness that they were in the the dying days yeah. of civilization. So where oh god, so Darian obviously died fighting Servir. Who else? Oh, uh, Radenskard died at the end. Radenskard died at the end, yeah. and also we need to remember that uh, Vasily the Lead Drake also died. Oh because yes, oh yes, yeah, so three and a half with a mech. Uh, so yeah, uh, that was a good one. Gunfight um, yeah, with a mech. If that, like, in a, as a cowboy knight, that doesn't sell you on a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's it's a big old, it's a big old, it's a big old vibes fest, right? And that's important with a lot of the games is that there's this big, beautiful, like Arthurian setting of this civilization, and uh, but none of it actually matters because the important thing is that you're playing cowboys. And the cowboys have magic guns, and many of them are wizards and/or knights. And like, you're going to be engaged in this like chivalric sword fights and sort of big, ridiculous, quixotic quests. And I've gone back through since we played it and added a bunch of like really weird legendarium subtext. Like, it's now in the game that possibly if you find Excalibur, you can become king of myth, and it won't matter that the king dies. Um, <laughs> that you know, is cool. It's, it's all in there now. But I love the idea of a group of knights being like, "Hey, this king's going to die in the prophecy, but if we go find the Lady of the Lake, and one of us is worthy, like you know." So it's go lots rogue of- for. A- a, I was going to say Grail quest, but more sword quest. Well, there's there's a Grail quest in there as well, don't worry. Of course, um, of course, yeah. There's there's multiple Grail quests, uh, and you can also find some magic rings because I'm a I'm a, a menace. <laughs> Can't be trusted with cowboys. Uh, but yeah, there's <laughs> a lot of impeccable vibes. I hope that, and also the art that's done by uh, the fantastic Claire underscore Arts on Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, that are truly impeccable. And yeah, you've posted some of the art on your Twitter, and it's really amazing. Oh, yeah, I mean, lots, lots, and lots. There's like going to be over a hundred pieces in the final book, all of which are in like. It's going to be the first thing Solmopic does in A4, um, with like a big hard cover, and uh, it's got the Lady of the Lake on the front with a handgun, uh, and <laughs> I just. I, the thing is, is that the the most wonderful thing about working with incredible artists and running this company is that, as much as it is like slightly scary, not really having a guaranteed income and uh, you know having to do all this creative work, otherwise I will be, you know, homeless. Um, is that I get to give artists money, and what comes out is beautiful books that people will use and run and play and i get to like indulge in my whimsical fantasies of like having all this beautiful art appear of stuff that previously existed in my head for a really long time because like this has been the, the only book i've not written a book since but like, i've not done a book by myself with my vision since i started soul mapping in probably 2019 oh. so like i've been doing games part time like 20 plus hours a week for um four years now basically since i last made a book that was written by me from an idea i had because 
most of the sort of best stuff. Brain Adventures, Orbital Blues was a massive collaborative effort. And so is Gangs of Titan City. Our friend Nick has been very fantastic breaking that. And all the projects that I've been doing have mainly been like, I've not been the primary creator. I've been a sort of consultant, writer, like occasionally doing some of that, but mostly looking at like art direction and project management and logistics and marketing and making the things appear. The stuff I talked about at the beginning, right? But this is... And the reason I'm so excited about it is that like, this is my fucking baby and it is going to slap. Like It slaps. I hope. Uh, We've revealed our ages there talking about slapping. God. (laughs) But yeah, no, it's good. Uh, it's, it's, It's fantastic and I'm so excited and I just can't wait to get it into people's hands and uh, the yeah. I'm just doomed Arthurian western. Just pump it into my veins. So it's many sad cowboys. Sick. Like, yeah, no. With um, art, talking about art and commissioning art, you am I correct in saying for inevitable because you were going on the plate? It's like you're often receiving art while working on the game itself. Uh, it depends on the project. Um, I've been. I've been. Well, I, I, the inevit- the the start date on the manuscript for Inevitable was like March twenty twenty one. So I've been working on it for two years, and I hired Claire. I think about three to six months after that. So I've been working on it for nearly three years. No, for two years now. But it was it's been that's the manuscript, the actual. I the I wrote the novel in 2017. So mm. like it's been there's been a lot of this stuff in my head for a really long time, and uh, the art's been streaming in at two or three pieces a month for some months for two two nearly two years now as well, like a year and a half. So it's been very gratifying sending over pictures and getting this like wonderful enthusiastic stuff that's previously only existed in my head, uh, yeah. especially because like. It's a bit, it's like, because obviously I've worked with, I've been lucky enough to work with some fantastic artists over the year, uh, years. I've done a lot of stuff with Ben, uh, but when we were working on the original Best Death Buried book, I was just like, bring me a monster that looks like a goat. And like, something would come back that was like more interesting than what I was capable of thinking of. Or, and you know, we did write like most of the art direction for Orbital Blues was done by Sam. Like I, had, I was supporting, but like Sam wrote all the pictures. Sam came up with the, all the ideas, and then Josh obviously did the uh, final stuff. Well, to be fair, I think most of Josh's stuff was pretty unprompted and off the dome. I think there are a couple of pieces that we said, "Hey, we think we need this or that." But this has very much been like I get to think of this idea on a sit on a mountain for like a couple of years, noodling away at this manuscript, and then the art just comes screaming, streaming in as I'm working on it, and you know. Uh, it makes me really, really happy because, like I said, this one's my baby. I've been thinking about it for a long time. Yeah, I guess I was wondering there what you were talking about with like the best left berry collaboration with Ben. It's often how does do you feel like getting in new pieces of art sometimes, um, you know, influences or like how does that influence and help you iterate on the ideas you may have started already? I mean, uh, so like most of the most of the best Death Buried dungeons that we do 
are not I pitch Ben a monster and so like Ben's background is in like drawing is, is it actually political cartooning uh, which is absolutely oh. ridiculous uh, but <laughs> the uh, so before he was drawing uh, unhinged dungeon dwelling monsters uh, with you know veiny faces and uh, you know horrible policies towards people he was you know drawing Margaret Thatcher and whatnot. And you know pictures of the empowered British politicians at the time. Uh, Very no, different world from unhinged. Oh yeah, 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 totally, totally. totally yeah. I, mean, I think that was the joke I was trying to make, but I just, I yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so Ben, th- that was a lot of what Ben was doing, and like Ben is so viscerally imaginative with monsters that like I don't tend to pitch him stuff. So like a lot of the. I don't have the audacity to tell him how to draw a monster uh, because he's so. A lot of the early best left buried dungeons were. I was coming up with what the dungeon would be after Ben had sent me the monster. So, right. like uh, the so, for example, the starter dungeon in best left buried is called Lord Edmund's Barrow, right? And that was that's that's in the Dungeon Master's Guide equivalent, Doomsayer's Guide to Horror, uh, and. <laughs> What happened is that I was sent a drawing of a of a of a moth bear, right? So a big like it looks like an owl bear, like these big squat haunches, but then like six eyes and like little wings coming off it, and like it was it had silk coming out of it, right? Uh, so I was like, oh my god, how do I make what? How do I turn this into a dungeon? So what it turns into is like me drawing a uh, me deciding that. This dungeon is going to be the um, a burial site for mummies, where the owl bear is a captured creature that is being used to make silk wrapping. Right? Oh my god! Uh, so then the entire like burial complex around it, which this owl bear has now escaped. Well, this moth bear, rather mother, as she was called. He's, also in the image got all these horrible little cocoon silk wrapped cups that are like tiny little mouth bear you know and it's like that stuff happens on a regular basis we have the same process with the octoclops in um in the first dungeon which is like a sort of enormous cyclops with like eight bug eyes and then you know that whole run of initial dungeons was just like ben would send me this absolutely jacked up insane monster and i'd be like how do I, how do I turn this into a dungeon? Because like, one of the things for me is that like, even in horror, there should be a reason that this weird fucking thing's running around, right? I like because it like information is really important in dungeon crawling. Like being able to understand why a thing exists and where it lives and where it comes from. Like you can't. It's best if it's not just like oh, so random, scoop, spoopy monster. So then I have to go. Why does this? horse-limbed, drooping, ichorsack creature live in this place, right? On you know, so the the I would say that although sometimes I'm like, hey, bud, draw me a snake with lots of teeth. Like that happens sometimes, but more often than not, it's like um but the but the more a lot of the more interesting best left brain monsters also come from collaborations, right? But and equally, this is my favourite one, is that um, we did our first... The first Kickstarter saw I ever did in 2019 or something 
uh, was called A Doom to Speak, and it was these little pamphlet dungeons, like a zini, we called them, which is like one piece of paper with an adventure and everything you need to do in a session. Uh, and we'd hired five stretch goal writers, and Ben had drawn five monsters. Uh, and basically, every single writer had a fight over this one monster that Ben drew, <laughs> which was a dragon that was like hairy and like this matted fur on it rather than being scaly. And, but like, I sort of, I made a group chat with all the writers and it was like, Hey guys, who wants each one of these? And like, everyone was like, give me the dragon, give me the dragon, give me the dragon. Obviously eventually. Give me that fuzzball. Give me that fuzzball. Give me that, give me that big fuzzball. And eventually uh, ZDXC got it and wrote uh, white hair, which I think is the, the weirdest best they've buried adventure we've had yet. But, We'll deal with that because there's a hopefully there's a whole other wave of similarly inspired monsters where Ben draws something and I give it to a member of the public to try and turn into a dungeon, um, and that will come out at some point in the future. That <laughs> but, sounds uh, yeah, that's, that's on the back burner. But yeah, I mean specifically um, like collaborating with artists, hundred percent informs the writing at every process. Like especially because. There's this temptation, especially when working with myth, uh, to send stuff back because it doesn't look how it does in my head, right? Mm. Because I've obviously got a, well, I've got a very visual brain, and this stuff's been floating around there for a long time. And generally speaking, artists are better at visual creation than most writers, right? So sometimes they go like, "Ah, now, nah, man, that's what this character looks like now. Awesome, you know." Um, there's examples of that in uh, in the sort of manuscript of Inevitable where like stuff has changed because the artist has done a better job of it than existed in my head. Yeah, uh, it happens across the board all the time, uh, and you know it's the artist. Like, I mean, honestly, I don't think it's this is particularly controversial. Most role-playing game books are 100% sold on their art. Like, yeah, there's a really strong percentage of the audience that isn't. It's just going to look at them and read the things. Like, mm-hmm. I think I, I'm personally a, like a a play supremacist, right? I think that getting the thing to the table is like the most important act, and I don't really care about what the process for the reader is like as a like. What I want is the the idea of successful reading for me is that. It's usable. It, it encourages play, right? Mm. It makes them go, "Go hot down! I have to get this to the table." And also, allowing and facilitating the um, the process of play once it arrives, right? But also, there's an understanding that a lot of people just want to look at pretty pictures, and yeah. uh, I'm super on board with that because um, the, I'm lucky to work with a bunch of incredible artists, and uh, you know, across the board the popularity of all my games is I sometimes feel like my work is only ancillary, right? To the artists that I work with and um, you know, they're doing the hard work of doing all the marketing for me and getting people to actually look at the goddamn game. Um, did I use the word ancillary correctly there? Yeah, providing Yes. Necessary support to the primary activity or operation of an organization. Yeah, perfect. Okay. That makes you can keep that if you want. I don't know. Anything. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I mean, I think it's important that listeners know that um, I fact check this this podcast yeah, yeah, on yeah, the fly. Yeah, yeah. Totally. 
totally, There's, totally. I mean, no, I, mean, I, I did. No, no, I, I googled that. That wasn't. That wasn't yeah. Oh, but I, I think I think you knew that that was the expectation I'd set yeah, yeah. as the podcast. <laughs> Do you have room for two more questions? Sorry? What Do you have room for two more questions? Yeah, totally. Just, cool. Uh, Chico, I was going to say before, the thing you were saying with the Bethlehem of Berry Monsters, are you much of a comic person? Uh, well, I, I actually really bounce off comics as a medium. Uh, mm. I wish I was, but uh, I struggle with skim reading at the best of times, which is why I've fallen out with reading large quantities of fiction, to be honest. Uh, I I have to read a comic like two or three times before I actually understand what's going on. Yeah. Uh, but I love them and I love, I love art in comics. And I've been lucky enough recently to be involved as the producer and project manager of Die, the RPG. So that's been a lot of reading and referencing uh, the die comics and i've fallen increasingly in love with that medium as i go and i've ended up picking up a bunch of kieran stephanie's other stuff and sort of people in adjacent things i went to thought bubble recently uh, which is an amazing uk comics convention harrogate that i was lucky to go to while peddling die basically so yeah i mean and there's lots of but i think that I don't know how many comics Ben reads, uh, but I can definitely see lots of influences in kind of like black and white comic, particularly. I, mean, I see a lot of Junji Ito in in Ben's work. Yeah, apparently. I don't. I don't know if Ben. I mean, that's one that friends have said to me that is the case, and I've read some of that and gone, okay, this is a bit too weird. Why am I reading right to left? My brain isn't working here. Uh, but yeah, yeah, really, I feel if you struggle with comics as a medium, trying to yeah, flip, it's, it's it's not a good place to work. To be honest, yeah. But yeah, comics but, yeah. I brought up because it just what you were saying really reminded me of how a lot of like Silver Age Marvel comics were written was actually like the art would be drawn first, placed in panels, and then the writer was often crafting the story uh, around that into bubbles yeah. and things. I mean, God, that's definitely a lot... That sounds a lot more difficult than what I'm trying to do, which is, like, just make a cool <laughs> monster exist somewhere. Um, I, yeah, it, uh, it baffles me. The idea of doing it baffles me, but I know it was it was very, very popular. Yeah, um, wow. Going back to Inevitable, Doomed Arthurian Western... Uh, picking up on one of those words, I guess I wanted to one ask what does sort of Arthurian mean to you, and I guess what things have informed your idea of um, King Arthur and his assorted ilk. Yeah, I mean that's it's super interesting. So like I'm, I would be the first person to say is that I am not a, I'm not a Mallory stan. Like I'm, I'm not, I do not speak enough Middle English to. Like I've got a copy. I've attempted to read the, you know, Mort Arthur or whatever, but my interest in it is mostly I think I'm more interested in the shorthand of what Arthurian literature is meant to represent, which is like a and yeah, it, it's a very non-academic understanding of it, but sort of the idea of this group of knights paralyzed by the concept of virtue and what it means and particularly the thing that speaks to me a lot about it is this tradition of for stars just merlin running around and fucking shit up is just <laughs> my entire jam like 
all of the wizards in Inevitable are just different Merlins doing different stuff. There's like there's like three guys, there's three wizards in the Inevitable canon who are basically different like types of Merlin. There's Merlin like is a gender. Merlin is yeah. There's a sort of uh, trickster Merlin uh, who's kind of like who I who's called the Raven claimed. There is a sort of weird Lady in the Lake husband trapped in a tree dude called the Branch Pierced, and then there's also he cut your heart out, yeah. And then there's also a um, a sort of advisor to the king who is completely uh, just who's interested in completely different things to everyone else at court, right? And but importantly, the the thing that I wanted to take from it is the idea of this paralyzing ineptitude of trying to do your job while also be virtueful you know, be virtuistic and chivalrous, chivalrous. Um, and also the idea of like this obsession with these like quixotic impossible quests. And the, I mean, essentially the whole, what I wanted to hit with inevitable is the idea of this sort of incredibly horny, but like closetedly, um, like, like closetedly horny disaster polycule of cowboys running around trying to save the world, knowing that nothing they were doing was going to matter. And just like yeah. that being the mood that permeates this court is that of just rampant depression and people dealing with that depression in whatever ways they know how either struggling or giving up or like, flailing against it by attempting to do impossible quests or just becoming incredibly violent and not doing a good job of running court but like ultimately it's a shorthand for a genre that I wanted to hit of these guys doing their best but being like very much beyond their depth and knowing that it is almost impossible to do what they're trying to do while still maintaining their social cast, while also interacting with this ridiculous level of ambient magic that's running around the setting from wizards and witches and lake ladies and cups that bear the blood of Jesus and magic swords that get to decide who is king and cauldrons that if you chop a man's head off and put it in there, it brings them back to life. Like All of this... like nonsense inherent in the trappings of the genre and also the sort of the weird historical hypocrisy of the fact that it's meant to be like 600 700 ad but they are all actually knights is sort of the same thing that happens in myth where they're running around in this castle that is it's meant to be the 1300s but they're all actually cowboys and they have handguns like yeah this sort of the time displacement of them not being the right protagonist in their current age is a sort of super weird thing because obviously the actual Saxon warlords did mm. not give a monkeys about chivalry, right? But what you have is these knights who are obsessed with that being transplanted into this sort of fake period of history, so it's all actually quite anachronistic, right? If you if you look at your Arthurian media, it doesn't really make it like totally it's it's wish wash because it's applying 
Christian values that these guys might not even have, right? Um, yeah, I'm always more interested in offering media that just accepts it as not a real historical setting in any yeah. in any but way while still doing the genre and just goes for That's what we could do here. There's sort of like weird cowboys floating about and it doesn't really make much sense. But that's something that hits to me as well. And then, yeah, like I said, also the just ridiculous ambient magic running around in the setting that nobody really questions how mad it is. Like, you know, there's some weird stuff that happens in Arthur, man. Like, you <laughs> yeah. Know. And then, but that also, like, I only sort of reached Arthurian as a word as a shorthand for fantasy, right? Because it's a fantasy western. And the the Dark Tower is similarly interested in, like, this sort of weird anachronism of the fact that these guys are knights and also cowboys, and vice versa sometimes, you know? Um, and that's not really interested in virtue because, like, Roland is so far removed from Gilead that honor doesn't matter to him anymore. He just wants to. He seeks the tower. That's what he does. Uh, but it, it kind of. I, I I only sort of started once I started writing the game. I was like, wait a second, there's a court here. All this fantasy is happening, and all these wizards are wandering around. Actually, yeah, this is this is a hundred percent Arthurian. Like, I've only started using Arthurian in marketing in the last like two three months because like. I didn't realise it was something that was so important to the genre, um, mm. and it's a, it's an exciting um, space to operate in, basically, I think. Yeah, it's yeah. a very powerful vibe that I think is used really well in the game, and I think feels so much more precise than um, fantasy. I think it conveys a lot yeah, more about yeah. the, the game, absolutely. Yeah. So one last question I wanted to ask so music is a big part of Orbital Blues. Has it been a sort of conscious or unconscious part of your process with other projects? Yeah. So, yeah, the music of Orbital Blues is like a real big part of what it is. Uh, obviously, it's inspired really heavily by sort of like 60s through 80s Dusk Bowl Americana and a lot of sort of uh, country, rock, blues folk built into there and like that is the real driving force of what sam brings the setting that's sam's kind of music you're sort of like um your springsteen your cashes and your dylan's uh it's not something i'm super duper invested in myself my orbital blues sounds a lot more like jazz uh if you if you if you like the sound of orbital blues or you've played the game if you come to our discord server there is a playlist entirely about music there's a channel where I talk about all the sort of stuff that appears in my Orbital Blues, and then Josh has his own secret Orbital Blues playlist. You can probably find somewhere. Ah, is all the music that Josh played while writing, or illustrating and writing his book, which is called Wayward Stars, which is the Orbital Blues art book, um, where we kind of talk about how the art is made because it's really exciting. But um, so for me, I am a huge. Uh, I mean, the, most of my creative work is informed by um, a lot of like experimental and well, c c both classical and experimental jazz, right? So, the soundtrack to Inevitable is a um, is an album, well, a series of albums by Colin Stetson, which is called uh, a New History Warfare, which is a 
concept album about the apocalypse and the follow-up to it that is played by one man on a saxophone uh, just ruining the thing. It's like uh, circular breathing and uh, like percussive keys and like it's it's absolutely mad and I would encourage anybody who listens to it to try uh, place listen to some Colin Stetson. I would start with a um, there's a YouTube video called uh, Among the Seth and in Mirrors uh, of this guy playing a saxophone in a uh, sewer under Paris. Uh, so it's exactly the kind of pretentious bullshit that I'm on board with. But it's a lot of like, I'm listening to as I'm making this stuff, a lot of weird and experimental jazz, like dark jazz and doom jazz are two things. And like, there's an, I think those are quite close to dungeon jazz as well. So it's like super interesting because like, I listen to a lot of, I do listen to like inverted commas, normal person music, right? Um, you know, I, I enjoy... Um, lots of like indie pop and indie rock and you know have dabbled in many many genres over the years but like my creative music is driven entirely by my love of pretentious jazz music and uh so the soundtrack to inevitable is one man dying into a saxophone and i cannot overstate how ridiculous that is and my hope for many years has been to commission him to eventually make a soundtrack for the game but that would cost like in an, an enormous quantity of money so it's not going to happen because he does film music for actual films that are um, so I can't afford that but it's been in my head for a long time and like there's lots of other like quite instrumental pieces of jazz that are very uh, that are very inevitable for me there's a album called uh, Dance of the Whales I think by a guy called Gasparo Lieto which again is like insane horn music uh, that is I'll, I'll send you a link and you can put it in the doodly do yes. um, you know but like there's all this like wi- like my creative stuff is all entirely weird music and then also like a lot of film soundtracks that are capable of manufacturing sadness in my brain because like the the mood of these this setting is so deeply specific that it I kind of like getting myself in the mood when I like it's like method writing, which is fucking batshit, and I can't believe I'm pretentious enough to suggest that's what I do on a podcast in public. But, I, I, if it makes you feel better about suggesting, I will say I also do a similar thing in terms of often like chasing yeah, a mood. Using I was uh, I've been listening sort of to that Lady Hawk album that you wrote. Um, I wrote your your what's it called infinite dance floor oh yeah the infinite dance floor is like written to be played alongside a lady hawk album which is yeah absolutely on brand um <laughs> and yeah but there's there's a lot of music and a lot of what we do and you know when i eventually write my own orbital blues adventure because i've not managed to get around to it yet because we're <laughs> focusing on other stuff uh but I've got one that I'm reasonably excited about. I'm hoping to at some point write a noir investigation adventure set on a cruise ship oh, and write cool. a, a cruise ship in space, obviously, because we're not yeah. cowards. Uh, I'll do that eventually, and that will have a quite heavy jazz soundtrack, I imagine. But you can listen to my Orbital Blues jazz playlist on the, uh, which is like four and a half hours of largely instrumental sad jazz. Um, 
Well, no, it's all instrumental. There's not, there's not a word on it. I made sure. There'll be no um, words in here. No words in here. You should be able to express how sad you are of a saxophone. Um, <laughs> no, it's lots of like uh, Miles Davis and Felonius Monk and Bill Evans and uh, Cannonball Adderley and like lots of that's like more trad classical 50s, 60s, 70s jazz um, uh, John Coltrane and stuff like that like lots of uh, weird and beautiful stuff but um, yeah I, I'm i always like trying to work, like, I, I think that there were, originally there was, when I was writing my novel I wasn't as jazz pilled at that time and there was like a sort of traditional soundtrack that was mostly like dark country stuff but it's all kind of like subsided to weird music that's all shall be onto jazz all shall be onto jazz and the, uh, people often wait i've had this joke that i've well, there's been a joke going around for a while that all my games are about uh, depressed and all my games are about how bad capitalism is and all of my games are uh, and people have said that it's sad cowboys but it's, it's the, the next game isn't sad cowboys uh I'll tell you about the next one off stream mm. because I'm not announcing that yet. It's not going to be out for like three years. Uh, but then, but they are all about jazz. So it's jazz, sadness, sadness. capitalism being bad, and often ruminating about death. Uh, so yeah, yeah I just I the just sort my, of, my the, goal, the triangle uh, you could use to summon you. Yeah, uh, I try to, and I can't remember whose words this are. I've stole, I've definitely stolen from someone. I try to be. Always on brand, but never predictable. Ah, that is, those are good um, words. I'll probably yeah. steal them from you, continuing the chain. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's that one. Yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. And I have not yet figured out a sign-off, so maybe I'll try a different one each episode. So today, um, trust no one, forgive nothing. See you all in hell. That's so unnecessary. Too much. Thank you for having me. I'll see you. I'll see you. Too much. much. (laughs) Hey there, Kayla here. Just letting you know that if you go to soulmuppet.co.uk and sign up to the mailing list, you can imminently receive the adorable, tiny, inevitable quick start, which is on a single sheet of A4 folded into a little zinny. I believe it then goes on general sale around the sort of week of the 13th of March, perhaps. And then the inevitable Kickstarter is coming in April. So just some firm dates for you to lock those into your calendar. And in terms of other things that happened since we did the original recording of this podcast, I can say that I've since released a little introductory adventure for a game of my own called Wild Duelist a contemplative medieval action game of animal folk warriors traveling to do so i've set up a little adventure for that called the ballad of the bastard and the tinkerer which you can find along with all of my other links at ratwave.uk have a good one and i'll see you on the next episode of this is your life path